Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. Uh, welcome to you here in the well, everybody upstairs in the well cafe. Uh, it's good as always to be in worship. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is Johnny, and I serve as the lead pastor for this worshiping community here. Uh, and just a great day to be together. I want to share with you uh, a little outline of how we're going to finish up our service today, just uh, to give you a little bit of an idea of what to expect over the next uh, 35 minutes or so. Uh, I want to start by giving you a snapshot of this new series that we're beginning this week. Sharon's already talked about that a little bit, uh, and you saw uh, the bumper video there. I want to sh- share a snapshot of the heart of the series, and then along with that, I want to share a brief message uh, to kick us off about uh, what this thing called church is that we do. Uh, how do we define church? Uh, so I, w- I want to do that, and then I want to pick up, after that, where Pastor David left off last week. Pastor David last week uh, shared with us kind of a state of the church address, where he talked a little bit about where we have come from, uh, not only in the distant past, but also just over the course of this year, um, looking at the incredible way God has been working. So I want to kind of pick up where he left off and talk specifically about the heart of this worship community that we call the well. So I want to do that and share an announcement about what that might look like in the days ahead for us. And then finally, uh, at the end of our service, we're going to share together in Holy Communion, a sacred ritual that the church has uh, shared together since its inception uh, that we will share together now here. such a beautiful time, so I'm excited for that. So... We don't have a lot of time to waste, so we got to get going. If, we, uh, if you brought your Bibles with you today, if you'll turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there's an app that you can download uh, that you can, I don't know if you're aware of that, uh, called The Bible. Uh, you can use that. Also, we have Bibles provided in uh, all of our spaces, uh, blue Bibles there. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, 1691 is the page where you'll find Acts, chapter 2. So let's check number one on that outline uh, off the list here. Uh, We are starting this brand new series called Family Meeting. And if you've heard us talk uh, about this series at all, if you've heard anything about the series, the idea is that uh, the church, and, and specifically this church, is a family. And one of the things that great families do is they are intentional about remembering who they are and where they're going. Now, Uh, Great families, as part of that, they establish their values. Uh, Families know what their values are, who they are, right? They understand their values, and they hold each other faithful to those values. Uh, That's what great families do. And then they also hold each other faithful to the vision of their family, where their family might be going, and who who they want to be for one another, and what they're pursuing together, Sharon shared a little bit about this, about our small groups. Uh, that, that's the idea behind this super series. We have our groups and we have uh, our, our weekend services. The weekend services where we'll be sharing vision, uh, the big picture, and what we're pursuing together as a church. And our small groups will be pursuing the values, understanding who we are, what makes us who we are as a church and as groups. Now, you may never have thought of the church like that before as a family. Some of you have it, maybe you haven't. But I think this metaphor for family is perfect Uh, for the church and and who we should be for one another and to one another. And churches, just like families, come in all shapes and sizes. This this church family just happens to be a great big family, which is why we believe in small groups so much, right? That's how you make a big church small again, as you meet together in smaller groups and share life together. I want to begin this series with this particular message. Here we are, moving on to part two of our outline. This particular message that begins with this question. 
When you think of the word church, what is it that you think about? Now, you might be thinking family because I just explained family and church. But if you were asked to define what the church is, how would you do that? How would you paint a picture for somebody who's never been to church before, has never cared about church before, uh, what the church is? Is it a building? Is it a weekend event that we gather for? Is it the longest hour of your life? (laughs) Is it a thing that you don't know how to define, you just know you're supposed to do it, and so you do? You show up to this thing because that's what your parents did for you, and you want your kids to be in a church, so this is just what you do. Maybe for somebody in here, some buddies in here, that you might see the church or understand the church as outdated or irrelevant. That you, you're here because a friend dragged you here, and you're not even sure why churches still exist anymore. For some of you, church is a wrestling match between you and your kids about getting out the door on time <laughs> and getting here, looking nice and not spilling their cereal all over themselves. Whatever you think of when you think of the word church, all of those things are true, right? We're in a church. We call this building a church. For some of you, this is going to be a really long hour. It's already been a long 30 minutes, and you got another 30 minutes to go. Uh, for some of you, you did wrestle with your kids this morning. Church is all of these things. But when we get to understand the heart of what the church is, truly what the church is and what it's meant to be, what we need to do there is we need to go back and look at how it began. So that's what we're going to do in Acts chapter 2. So let's turn our attention there. If you didn't know, Acts, uh, that's the short version uh, of the title of what we're going to read today. The longer version is Acts of the Apostles. We just call it Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all people that wrote the story of Jesus, wanted to tell the story of Jesus, so they wrote it down. We call them the Gospels. Only Luke decided to not stop there. Luke wrote a second volume, a sequel, and he called it Acts. So Luke not only wanted to tell the story of Jesus, but he also wanted to tell the story of what happened to all the people that were left behind, right? After Jesus ascended into heaven, like what happened next? Luke wanted to tell that story as well. And so as he begins Acts, chapter 1 is kind of recapping the things that Jesus said and did right before he ascended to heaven, right? After the death and the resurrection, and he leaves everybody there, and he says, hey, don't worry, I'll be back, right? Like, but he ascends into heaven, and he shares some final words with them. In verse 8 of chapter 1, here are the words that he shares. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses to the world. Jesus shares this with, uh, with the disciples as they are leaving, saying, don't worry, uh, the Holy Spirit is coming. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses to the world. Then the next half of chapter 1 is them deciding how, who and how they're going to replace Judas, right? If you know anything about the story, Judas, Judas ain't around anymore. And so they had a kind of an American Idol audition to replace that disciple. And uh, <laughs> they truly do. You can read it. Uh, and then you get to chapter 2. We'll start there. Verse 1. The day of Pentecost came. Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover. It was a big Jewish festival, which means people from all around were gathering. They were flocking, pilgrimaging, is that a word? To Jerusalem. Tons, I mean, flooding into the city. People are coming in from all around. Nowadays, in the Christian uh, religious tradition, Pentecost becomes known as the day that the church was born. Let's see how that happened. 
They were all together in one place, they the disciples. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. How do you explain something that's unexplainable? You say things like, seemed to be like, right? You describe the unexplainable with things that you can't explain. Uh, And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come. Now how do they respond? They began to speak in other tongues, or other languages, if you were going to translate that from the Greek, in other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. Now, There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven because of the festival. Uh, And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Now, just for good measure, Luke goes on from here, verses 9 through 11, to begin to describe all the types of people that are gathering together here. This is what I like to call a pronunciation obstacle course. Uh, If you're reading scripture and you want a fun game at home, just see if you can out loud say all of these things straight through without tripping over yourself. It's a fun game. We're not going to read it now. because even in seminary, when you you study this thing all the time, you still trip over the, the hurdles. But the main point... That these, that these verses are trying to say is that there's an incredible diversity of people gathered from the ends of the earth, from all around, that all spoke different languages, and yet they are gathered here hearing of the wonders of God in their own language. In their own language. Now, I could preach a whole sermon just on that alone, about what that means for the inclusion of people in the purposes and in the will of God, but we ain't got that kind of time today. I promised Tyrone that the, that the uh, Cowboys game started at 3 and I would get you out by 3 o'clock here at church. So we don't got time for another sermon. Verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Now, if you've ever been reading the Bible... And you come across things like this, tongues of fire and and people speaking in different languages or all kinds of crazy stuff that you encounter in the Bible. And you think, is it just me or is this stuff weird? Like, how do people believe this stuff? Like, I don't quite understand how I'm supposed to read this. I know that's some of you. And if that's you, don't worry. People back then thought it too. They thought these dudes were drunk, right? Like, they show up and people just babbling ever. And they're like, what is going on here? But then Peter responds, verse 14. Then Peter, one of the disciples, stood up with the eleven, the other disciples, and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, because it's only nine in the morning. Clearly, Peter never went to college, so he didn't know that that was possible. Peter assures them that this is normal, and then he goes on to preach a sermon. Verses 17 uh, through 39 is that very sermon that that Peter preaches to to the whole crowd. And he preaches this sermon using uh, their scriptures, which is what we call today the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament back then. They were living it, right? 
So he was preaching from their scriptures, quoting from the prophet Joel. Uh, he's preaching from that and their own experience of walking with Jesus and seeing what Jesus did and, 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 and uh, retelling the things that Jesus taught. They witnessed the power of God in Jesus. And so Peter begins to tell of it. Now, I'm not going to read you that part either because I'm already preaching you a sermon. I don't, you don't need a second sermon here. Uh, but I would love for you to read that on your own after the Cowboys game when you probably need to be asking for forgiveness. Just read this part of, uh, of Acts. Uh, and, but I want to lift up one particular verse out of this sermon. It comes in verse 32. And if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to underline this verse. It says this, God has raised Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it. This is like the thesis for Peter's sermon. Like, this is the whole point. Like, if he didn't want to preach all these verses, he could have just preached this one verse right here. That Jesus was raised to life, and we are all witnesses of it. If you want to double underline that, we are all witnesses part. We are all witnesses. So what does this have to do with the first question I asked about what is the church? Well, I think we can understand what the church is by looking at how it began right here in this story. Acts chapter 2. The church didn't begin with a building. Somebody just didn't build something and said, hey, let's call this thing a church and see if we can get people inside it. Church didn't begin with a pastor. Peter was there and he did preach a sermon. The church didn't begin because football hadn't been invented yet and people needed something to do on Sundays. That's not how the church began. The church began because people had a story to tell. People had a story to tell of the power of God that was evidenced in the risen Jesus. The church began because people had a story to tell. And the Holy Spirit empowered those people to do so. And because those disciples, those 12 people that were gathered together in one place, decided to be faithful to that movement of the Spirit, to recognize how the Spirit was moving around them, they didn't know what to look for. Yet they felt it, and they moved because of it. They stepped out in faith. They told the story, and you look at verse 31, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's a good day at church. You start with 12 people and you end up with 3,000 extra people in the building. That's a great day of church. And thus the church began. People being faithful to the movement of the Spirit and telling the story of God's love and God's power. Now next week we're going to take a look at the back, these last few verses of chapter 2, 42 through 47, these, those verses right there. We're going to take a little deeper look into those verses specifically. But if you do a quick survey of those verses, you just look over them, you could see that it doesn't stop there. Obviously, we're still gathering today. Uh, that, that day, 3,000 came, it didn't end there. They didn't think, well, that was pretty good. I guess we're done here. Like, they kept going. They kept meeting together on a regular basis, praying together, worshiping God together, serving one another, sharing with one another. And because of that faithfulness, because they continued to gather, verse 47, the end of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. People that are, are moving with the Spirit, telling the story of God. People will hear that story and they will gather and daily numbers will be added. 
not for numbers' sake, not just so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, look how many people are in church, but because every number has a name attached to it, has a life attached to it, a life that now knows the transformative love and grace of God. That's why those numbers are important, and that's why daily we want to add to those numbers. The disciples in this place were at a crossroads. That's what's so amazing about this story. They were at this crossroads. Like their world had totally changed. Their teacher, the one that had taught them, the one that had had asked, hey, come follow me, and they've dedicated their life to this man named Jesus, their teacher was gone. All the amazing miracles they saw, what for them, what was going to happen next? What are they supposed to do now? Their teacher was gone. They had this great story to tell. And Jesus had given them this great commission to go and tell it to the world. But how were they supposed to do that? And plus, the world around them was radically shifting as well. Radically shifting, not only politically and the tensions between the religious community and the, and, and the ruling uh, empire of the time, the Roman Empire. It was getting shaky and it was getting worse. And, and the tensions between religions was getting worse too. It was a shaky time. The world was shifting and changing. People were uncertain about what the future held. And this is where the disciples are with, at this crossroads of what should they do and what, what is going on around us. I believe the church today uh, is constantly at this crossroads where, where things are always shifting around us and, and outside of us. The world is constantly changing and constantly moving And the Spirit never stops moving. The Spirit of God never stops moving. But what we have to decide is how we will respond, not only to the movement of the Spirit, but the changing world around us. I want to try to illustrate this in this way, in a more modern way that really has nothing to do with religion or the Bible. I want to try to illustrate this with uh, with photography. Now, I love photography. I am not a photographer at all. Uh, The best I have of photography is this really expensive thing that I think they call phones, but I don't really call people on it anymore, but I take a lot of pictures with it and uh, put layer and layer of filters on it and just destroy the picture and then put it on Facebook, right? Like that's the extent of of my photography skills. But I know there's many people in this room and people upstairs and all over this church that y'all are awesome photographers. I've seen your pictures. I've seen you post them online. Uh, You've taken some for my family and many families uh, around town. You take magnificent pictures, and you actually capitalize on the the digital forum to actually make those pictures better instead of hiding your crappy skills behind all the filters, right? Like, that's what I do. But it's amazing to see how photography has made the shift over the years from film to digital, Right? We have this camera in our pockets that's more powerful than most cameras that have, have been, right? We, we have this incredible technology with us. And, and did you know the very first digital camera, the very first digital camera ever made was made by Kodak, right? And you're thinking, oh, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Kodak made the very first digital camera, and when they finally made one that was for consumers, it weighed eight pounds, and it cost... But they did it. They created the technology first. They were the first ones there. But the problem with Kodak was their bread and butter, do you know how they made their money? With film and with printing. 
That's where all the income came. That's where all the revenue came from. That's what paid for the research to make the digital camera. So they made this digital camera, but they were kind of like, eh, I don't know if we want to jump too far into this because we got all. What happens if digital takes off? It's going to ruin all this stuff that has really made us our money. So they kind of tiptoed into that world, not really sure how the market might go. But then Nikon comes along. Nikon comes along and says, you know what? This digital thing, there might be something to it. So they released their first digital camera, the uh, uh, single lens reflex. Is that what they call SLR cameras? Uh, Where you can have the lens and take it off of the camera body, right? They decided to invent one of those, 1999. They made one, and they were like, this is going to do it, right? We're going to get professional photographers in now. It doesn't weigh eight pounds. doesn't cost $13,000, right? Like, people are going to do this. But you know what? We've got to be a little bit careful. All of our loyal Nikon users... You know, if we do what we really want to with the camera housing, they're going to have to buy all new lenses because of the way we're going to have to shape this thing. So we don't want to do that. So what they did is they developed the first digital SLR camera that was actually compatible with all the old lenses that they had for their old SLR cameras. But the problem was when they did that, the computer chip to help capture, the technology to help capture those digital, had to be much smaller. So they jumped in and they did it. And because they did that, they captured the market. But then Canon comes along. And Canon has a slightly different approach. And in 2003, they revolutionized digital SLR cameras when they released the, I don't know what it's called, EOS D30, something like that. Uh, Now, what they did made a a few people upset at first because the new housing they created required all new lenses. You had to buy pretty much all of your equipment again. But because they did that, But because they did that, they were able to put a larger computer chip with better technology and capture the best pictures that anybody had ever seen. Now, what do you think all of those loyal Nikon users did when they found out how great Canon's camera was? They jumped ship. They they dumped all their Nikon gear, and they all went over to Canon. And Canon became the new leader for professional photographers, that were jumping into the digital realm, and just professional photographers in general. 2003 came along when they released that, and Kodak was struggling. Technologically, financially, they were struggling. And even though they were the first ones into the market with a digital camera, they were the first ones to introduce this brand new technology, they had severely miscalculated how quickly people would jump over to digital photography. They severely calculated how quick that move would happen uh, within technology. The Kodak executives had estimated somewhere around eight years before people would really make the transition from film to digital. But just two years after Canon releases uh, the D30, digital cameras outsold film cameras for the first time, and it's never looked back since. That's six years before Kodak executives had really understood what would happen. They missed it. They completely lost the opportunity, almost lost the company, because they weren't willing to make the shifts they needed into this new market space. They weren't really ready to take the risks that they saw. Nikon made it, but there was a little bit of a lack of commitment there. They only made a partial shift. They went halfway in. They were afraid of, uh, of alienating, alienating the customers that they had had for so long. But because of their hesitancy, those faithful customers jumped over and didn't fully commit to Nikon. They found somebody else who was fully committing to the change. I own a Nikon camera, by the way, an SLR camera, so they are back. But Canon was right on the target. What Canon did was take a big risk, make a big change, because they saw how technology was moving. They didn't try to put old lenses on a new camera. 
Because their priority was quality, not convenience. Canon wanted to jump full bore into this new place. They were focused on the future, the movement of technology, and the new customers that they wanted to reach. And when they did that, they not only reached new customers, but they became the leader among professional photographers and the most trusted name in digital photography. All because they understood this very simple thing that a lot of businesses have trouble understanding, a lot of organizations, and heck, a lot of churches have a really hard time grasping, which is this, the things that got you here aren't always the things that will take you into the future. The things that brought you to this place, that got you here, the practices, all all the moments that got you here are not always the things that will carry you into the future. Because the world is changing all around us and the Spirit continues to move, we must follow that movement of the Spirit to continue to effectively tell the story of God in this changing world. Now hear me when I say the story doesn't change. Just like in our, our parable of the, uh, of the photography companies, right? Like Taking pictures was still the game. The game didn't change. It's taking pictures. It's just how it was played changed. Same in church, same with our faith. The story never changes. The goodness and the graciousness of God doesn't change. But how we tell it might have to. It might have to because the church is a movement of the spirit. You want to define church? That's how we define it. It's a movement of the spirit, not a monument to the past. There are too many churches today that are committed to only being who they've been only being who they've been. And churches that do that will find themselves less and less effective in spreading this incredible story, spreading the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ and that transformative love and grace that has been so influential in in my life and many of your lives. It will become less and less effective at telling that story because it's just committed to being who it's always been instead of uh, adapting the story to reach the changing world. And churches that do that every day grow closer and closer to closing their doors forever. In 2010 through 2012, the last time a survey like this was done, it was estimated that half of the churches in America in that time span, half of the churches in America didn't add a single new member in that two-year span. Half of the churches in America did not add a single new member in those two years, many of whom lost members throughout that time. It's also estimated that somewhere between 4,000 and 8,000 churches every single year close their doors for good. That's 10 to 20 a day. Churches closing their doors. Now, we might, we might say that this world is changing. People care about God less. People care about morality less. People care about religion less. And, and that, that may be all true as well. But I think the church must also take a hard look at itself. And remember how and why it got started 2,000 years ago. And look at what we have become rather than who we should be. I can tell you right now, I'm very thankful to serve a church that doesn't do that. A church that is uh, dedicated to honoring the past, honoring those that came before us and looking at how we got here and how we reached people and how we have grown, but also looking forward to the people that we want to continue to reach And as the book of Acts says, be committed to adding numbers daily to those that are being saved. 
One example of many is this very community right here, the Well and the Well Cafe. If you're regular here, you know that in the short history of this worshiping community, it has been marked by growth. So much so that when we began it six years ago, this crazy idea to run a concurrent service, a service at the same time as one of our other services, within three years, it was spilling out the doors. We couldn't hold enough people in this building, let alone this room. Because of this service, we had to start this brand new thing. We had to start a satellite campus on our own campus just across the hall, right? And, and, and we had to start this new service, and that too grew. Over the six years, this whole service has been marked by growth, and now we have this one community, one worship community worshiping in two places at the same time. And many of you not only have found a home here, but you have shared an invitation with somebody to come because of your enthusiasm for this worship service and come to be with you. And many of you are here because somebody invited you here. I love that. We called it the well because of the story that we find in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where the woman is sitting at the well and encounters Jesus, has this un, uh, unexpected uh, encounter with Jesus, not expecting him at all to even talk to her, and yet talks with her and he shares grace with her. What an amazing moment, and that's what we hope each and every week in these services. It's a place where you can come, encounter Jesus, and encounter his grace. That's what we hope, and that's what we dedicate ourselves to, and I know that God's not done doing amazing things, big things through this very unique community that we have here. So what I want to do is not only challenge you to continue to be who you've been, people that gather together expecting to meet Christ, expecting to meet God in his presence and experience that grace, uh, continue to be people who invite others to come to church and experience that alongside you. Not only do I, do I want to challenge you to do that, but I also want you to know that we challenge ourselves the leadership of this church and the leadership of this community, we challenge ourselves to continue to work exceptionally hard so that we continue to grow and provide a dynamic and innovative worship experience each and every weekend. I want you to know that our team, made up of me and many of the people you see down here in the well leading and those upstairs in the well cafe, uh, for, for months we have been working together, brainstorming together how we might continue to do that and how we might step into the future that God is preparing for this community. And beginning next week, we're going to start to see some of the fruits of those discussions. So what I want you to know is this. First, Dylan. Dylan, are you in here? There's Dylan right there. Dylan, you all know and love. Dylan, if you've been down here in the well, a young man who has greatly influenced uh, many of our, our worship services uh, around the church, uh, and he's been here a very short time, has already influenced so many services, including this one right down here in the well. Next week, we're very excited that Dylan's going to be stepping in a brand, into a brand new leadership role, worship leadership role, uh, upstairs in the well cafe. Uh, it's, it's, it's high time for Dylan to start leading, uh, and, and we are excited that the whole band's going to go with him and accompany him and support him as he continues to grow into this new phase of leadership. Doug and Josh, who have been with this service uh, since its inception, who have been instrumental in this community's growth uh, and development, uh, will go with him to partner with him, continue to mentor him, to continue to help him grow uh, as a leader. Uh, we're very excited about that. As part of that move, um, if you're downstairs, you might not uh, know these names, but upstairs you definitely do. Jackson and Holly, uh, and the band that has led the cafe uh, over these years will come to lead the well. 
Now, Holly stepped into a leadership role at the cafe and in our Cornerstone Saturday service uh, a little over a year ago, and since then has just grown into this incredible uh, worship leader. She and Jackson both have dedicated themselves to creating an incredible spirit-filled worship environment upstairs, and, and they are excited to come join the well and, and worship down here. Uh, not only that, though, but to create the space and the opportunity that they had to grow as leaders uh, for Dylan as he steps into this new uh, leadership role. I know that as I say that in both of these spaces, I know right now what you're feeling, you're, how much love you have for the people that lead you in worship each and every week in both of these spaces. I know that you love them, and I know that they love you too. When you worship alongside other people uh, over the years, you can't help but grow close together. And I know that you're going to miss them, and they're going to miss you too. But here's something I also know that you may not know right now, that both spaces are in for a real blessing, an incredible blessing. This church, if you don't know, is filled with incredibly talented people and hearts that are so big for God, that love worship. I mean, we are truly blessed as a church, and each of these spaces are going to be truly blessed by the people that are coming to lead you in worship beginning next week. I'm so thankful that I serve a church like this and a, and a, a community like this that is dedicated to continue to raise up the next generations of leaders, to invest in them, to give them a place and a platform where they can explore their ministry and grow in ministry together. And that's all because of you. I'm so excited that, and especially this community. I, I am a product of this very community right here and the growth and the investment that you have in next generations of leaders. The very first time when I was firstly, first appointed as a pastor here at First Methodist Mansfield, my first task was to start and to host this crazy new idea we had called the Well Cafe. To put me up there and, and, and to make this thing go. And then now I get to be here each and every week from the pulpit sharing and leading this community. Likewise, we have uh, our, our newest and youngest pastor on our staff, a very talented young woman, Lauren Robkin, many of you know her, who will be our primary host for Upstairs and that you will get to hear uh, preach here uh, often. And I'm excited for that as well. This community has always been one of innovation, but also dedicated to raising up new young leaders. And I'm so thankful for that. So thank you for being a congregation committed to that, the growth and success of these young people. I want to ask you to do one thing over the next few days. Over the course of this week, on our way to church next week, what I want you to do is be in prayer for these new leaders and the new spaces in which they'll be worshiping. This new phase of their leadership and their new roles. As they step into them, I hope that you are washing them with prayer. And not just them, but this space as well. This space down here and the space upstairs. That as we march together into the future... As God continues to move in this community, as we continue to grow and fill seats, as we add to our numbers daily, those hearts, those lives that have yet to step foot in here, that have yet to know the grace and love of God, I hope that we are in prayer for them and the way God's going to move through this worship community to reach those people. And my prayer for all of us is that as we begin this series, as we reflect on what it means to be the church, and what it means to be this church in particularly. 
that we continue to walk bravely where the Spirit leads us, without fear, into our future. That we're not satisfied with simply being a monument to the past, but instead a movement of the Spirit. And living into that bold faith that may cause some to think we're crazy, but it's going to cause many more to come know the extravagant love of God. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for everyone who gathers on this church campus, but especially those that, that gather here in the Well and the Well Cafe. I thank you for their seeking, God. They're longing to know you. I thank you for how they have surrounded each other with love, surrounded each other with grace, accepted one another, God, as brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for the incredible leadership of this church, God, and this worship community here as we have been led into your presence time and time again, week after week, God, and we know that you're going to continue to move in this place. We pray with excitement, knowing that the future is going to hold big things, and we can't wait to be a part of them. 